Thanks. Um, so we're moving on this morning to talk about our current series, a, cur- a church that unites diverse people. So from now through the end of November, um, and then into next year, actually, we're focusing on the book of Acts. We're taking time to focus on this vision that Jesus gave to the birth of his church, at the birth of his church, to the new Christians that were coming together. He said, go to Jerusalem. Then go to Judea and Samaria. And then to the ends of the earth. I want you to take my message of new life to everyone. And this vision for the church was a radical vision in which he saw the church uniting people of all kinds of backgrounds, all nations, tribes, and tongues. And together, they would become the church. And this radical vision of Jesus was given to only a small group of about 120 people, which was pretty, a pretty tall order to give such a few. But he also sent them out with a gift. He said, before you go now, I've got a gift for you, the Holy Spirit. So wait until you're empowered and go and do. So we are living into the reality of this vision, and we're talking about it week by week to see what this means for us as our church pursues unity in diversity. So this weekend, we're talking about Acts chapter 6. And this is kind of one of those hefty passages in the book of Acts. It's a hefty passage theologically, and it's a hefty passage for us to consider because it deals with things that we need to keep our eyes on in culture and in our time today. So as we begin, I'm going to ask us to pray together and ask for God's wisdom. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together as a church. To dive more deeply into your word and let your word lead us forward into this vision to be a church that unites diverse people. We want to open ourselves up to your challenge, to your encouragement, to the Holy Spirit who nudges us and moves us forward. And we pray, Lord God, lead us today. In Jesus' name. Let's turn then to Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at four things. The problem that they faced, and the problem that all of us face when uniting diverse people. And we're going to talk about the solution that they chose, and the choices that we need to make to enter this. And then at the end of today, we're going to be celebrating at the communion table our unity in Christ. So, Acts chapter 6. In those days, when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. 
This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Permenaeus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith, which is pretty incredible when you consider the narrative and how it's been going so far. But let's look, first of all, at the problem that they faced. Back in ancient times, in around the first century, um, Jewish people were living all around the world. They weren't just living in that small uh, area that we know now as the nation of Israel, but they had been spread abroad um, because of war, because of uh, God's doing. And this was known as the diaspora. Uh, if you've ever heard of that word before, it's, it basically means the spreading or the scattering of people. And it was initially used to name this scattering of Jewish people around the world. And it comes from some Old Testament language talking about the diaspora. Nowadays, we talk about the diaspora of different types of people. We talk about uh, Asian and Latino diasporas. Um, But the word and the term was originally used to refer to this Jewish spreading of people. Now, what happened was, because some of these Jewish people were raised and they grew up away from the sort of uh, homeland, so to speak, they really adopted a different way of life. There were some Hellenistic Jews among them, for instance, and they spoke Greek. They looked kind of Greek because of their clothing and what they ate and how they acted, and so they were different. And every once in a while, when, when there were festivals in Jerusalem, and there was the gathering of everyone as they came back to Jerusalem. There was a difference. You can kind of tell, well, you're obviously a Hellenistic Jew because you dress and you talk and you act differently than the way that Hebraic Jews do. Now, some of you here who may be more recent immigrants to the United States kind of know this phenomenon, right? So um, I grew up with this kind of phenomenon. I was raised in California. Um, but I have a set of cousins um, that grew up overseas in China and Hong Kong while well, I grew up here in the United States. Um, and so when I talk about some of these dynamics, I'm very th- mindful of the fact that um, even though many of us grew up with the same family of order, I mean, we were from the same family, we're, um, we really practice a different way of life. Now, there was some integration going on for us as a family because my mom and dad would oftentimes invite my cousins to live with us while they made their way to America. So I had cousins that would sometimes sleep with me in, in my room growing up. Uh, they were a lot older than me, but they would break out their little English Chinese dictionary and ask me, hey, Ted, what does this word mean? What, what does that word mean? Uh, and they were much more familiar with the language, with the culture, the um, um, of China, and I was kind of like their translator into American life. And my dad was really wise in integrating us because we all played soccer together, and so we became friends. Um, 
So anyways, that's the kind of dynamic going on in the first century. Now, the problem specifically happened among widows in the first century. Now, let me explain some of the dynamic going on with widows. In the first century, the world revolved around men. It was a patriarchal society. And that meant men were educated They owned the land. They were in control of economics. And uh, politically, legally, men had status and women did not. So if you were uh, a woman and you lost your husband and you became a widow, you lost a lot. Not only your, your husband, you lost your power. You lost your political power, you lost your, your sense of ownership, you lost your place of being in society. Now, among ancient people, sometimes widows were taken advantage of. I mean, there was a vulnerable situation in which someone didn't have like legal representation, and unscrupulous people would come and take advantage of widows. Now, in Scripture, God told his people, you're not to be like that. You will not behave in that manner. You will love widows and orphans. You will take care of them. And so there came about in uh, the history of the Jewish people different kind of um, practices that would honor the widows in that culture, in that society. Um, There was a daily food distribution There was a line of meeting where uh, widows could come and present health needs or different financial problems that they were going through and get the help that they needed. But here was the problem. In Jerusalem, in those days, because there was Hellenistic Jews and there was Hebraic Jews, there was inequality at the distribution line. Now, we don't know all that went on. Luke doesn't totally tell us, but we could use our imagination You know, maybe the Hellenistic Jews, because they couldn't communicate their needs, couldn't fully tell about their problems, or maybe they came late to the distribution of food and they got the leftovers. Have you ever been last in line and wondered if there was going to be enough for you? Have you ever been last in line at a sale and wondered, are they going to run out by the time I get to the front? Or have you ever had had that kind of translation issue where you couldn't really tell others what you were truly experiencing? All of these could have been part of that scenario. And so the problem came to a head where the Hellenistic Jews began to complain. They were being neglected. They were being forgotten. They were being left out. And this painful experience for them reached the ears of the apostles. Now, I think this is a really, really important kind of problem for us to pay attention to. Now, we've been talking about a church that unites diverse people for, you know, over a month now. We've been going through this series, and this really begins the problem-solving that needs to happen among a church that tries to engage in this work. We've been laying theological foundations so far, but here in the book of Acts, We get to the point where there's a real-life scenario of inequality and how is the church going to deal with it. Now, this is actually a problem 
that we all face. And I want us to really pay attention to how significant this problem is for any group of people that is trying to unite diverse people. Within any of these contexts, you always face this human problem of a majority and a minority in the group. And majority and minority dynamics have a way of unraveling the unity of any group. I want to take some time to talk about this in a few ways, and I risk doing so with very, you know, um, embodied language. I'm going to talk a little bit about my experience and some of my things recently. Um, I do this with a grace of invitation that some of you who are not of my background may uh, hear it, I want to say your background and tell of your story. That's my longing. That's my hope that you will share it as well in return. But today, for these examples, I'm going to speak as Ted, an Asian-American male who grew up on the left coast in California, educated in California schools. Um, This is my embodiment and fleshment of my minority experience. I grew up as a minority. I grew up as a minority, and I was always a minority. In the elementary school that I went to, um, there were maybe about like five of us Asians in the whole school when I was like in kindergarten and first grade. Um, Now, you would think that that is kind of a lonely experience, being such a minority, um, and it kind of was, but... One of the interesting things about that was that most of my friends during that time were also of other minorities, and so that kind of helped. They were Jewish, they were Irish, they were um, Korean, um, Taiwanese, and so there was a sense of like, we're all minorities, it's okay. And one of the safety things that kind of happened among that time is that we all knew that racism was wrong. We all knew that picking on minorities was wrong, and that was kind of understood. Now, as we grew up in that system in California, a lot more Asians came into the city where I lived, and there was some safety in numbers. And by the time we were in high school, and some folks took this racist message to a really kind of a boiling point in high school, there was one point where um, in the men's, in the the boys' bathroom in high school, uh, a graffiti message was uh, written across saying, Asians go home, you know, which you'd think is something from like 20, 30 years ago. But um, that message was infuriating for many of us. But I only found out that it was about three people who did it. And like I was saying, the common thought among us California-raised kids was, that's totally out of bounds. People don't do that. That's so wrong, right? And so there was a, a freedom to feel anger and to feel that injustice. And then, no, that's, that's just crazy talk. Nobody talks like that. Um, I also learned something else as, as an Asian American. It was a, a title and a label that was given to me, right? That I was a model minority, right? You ever heard of that before, that term? It's used less these days. It's a complicated term. But when I first heard it, it was kind of like, wow, 
Somebody thinks I'm a model. This is great. <laughs> Nobody ever thinks that. Somebody thinks that my experience is, is a good one. They're giving me an A plus for being a really good minority. And an A plus is my language, right? That's the kind of, that's the kind of alphabet I like. Um, I would love getting an A plus in things. And um, for someone to affirm my experience and give me an A in my, in my minority status is is great. Um, but I learned as I began to grow up that some of this is actually not a good thing. The, my, the model minority myth, as I might say it, um, was actually used by majority culture to divide different minorities. By comparing different minorities and pitting them against each other, they were creating some types of division. Well, why can't you be more like them? Why can't you be more like them? The honest situation is that it's impossible to compare minority experiences. Our histories, our backgrounds are different. And even though that type of language of being a model minority was often used to pit Asians and blacks against each other, it is completely unfair. And using that language, as I discovered, was wrong. Not to mention another issue with it is that it's often been used to silence those who may want to speak on behalf of their Asian Americanness. To speak about my problems, it's like, oh, you're fine, you're good, you're a model minority. What do you have to worry about, right? Well, we're not all the same. We're not all the same, and... One of the things that's interesting about the Asian American experience is that our variance is, at least in terms of economic status, is one, among most, one of the most high of any minority group, the economic disparity between rich and poor, which sets up a lot of cultural and complicated dynamics even within our own community. I could talk about this for a while, so I'm, I'm just going to stop right there, but... <laughs> Yes, there was this mythology placed around me of being a model minority. And I share this today because this is part of the complexity of being in a majority and minority kind of status in culture. It's not easy to figure out. And for me, this is some of my experience. Now, recently, I also went on this trip uh, that I've been sharing about a lot. Um, it's called Sankofa, and it means looking back to move forward. It's a discipleship experience put on by the Evangelical Covenant Church, our denomination. And it's been really important for me to pay attention to the lessons I've been learning there and to dig in deep with it. Um, it's a civil rights kind of a journey where uh, you take a bus trip through the Deep South um, with a partner well, in my case, an African-American partner, uh, to experience civil rights sites, to talk about racism, to talk about slavery, to talk about Jim Crow, to talk about all the different things that have made up this, this African-American experience, and especially the painful parts of the experience, in order to move forward in a different way. Now, um, one of the difficult things about this experience for me in my West Coast California education is I've realized there have been some gaps along the way. There's some gaps in my understanding of U.S. history. And those gaps 
have been filled in by members of the African-American community who have graciously taken the time to sit with me to, to kind of talk through their experiences. I've talked through my experience, and I've been kind of a student in this. Uh, through Sankofa, we went to one of the sites in Alabama called the National Lynching Memorial. I've been a little reluctant to share about this experience because it was such a painful one for me and for the, the rest of the members of the group um, that every time I, get, I, I start sharing about it, I get choked up. It's like, oh, uh, it's hard to, to talk about it. But it's, it's probably one of the, the more significant learning experiences that was uh, there for me. I took some pictures uh, of it there. Um, I knew about the concept through school. I had no idea of the magnitude, the significance, the weight of what was experienced. Post-Civil War days for the African-American community, a lot of that history was neglected, it was forgotten, it was silenced. And as I've processed some of these things and I've seen some of the pictures of how the American public would put in their newspapers about public lynchings and have thousands of people show up at a public lynching after churches on Sundays, it was like a, a disgust that I would feel deep in my heart. Like, how could this happen? How could we have let this happen here in the United States and turned a blind eye to a part of our history that was so painful? That's been some of my processing. And this happened on the order of thousands. There's at least 4,500 names that are recorded in this site. And that's just the known ones that were published in papers that were easy to get to. There are thousands more. I've been able to, to be in some conversations with friends, which have been very significant for me, to process some of what I saw and experienced. One of them is Dr. Willie Peterson, who's in Dallas, um, who's a, a seminary professor um, who has been graciously sharing with me his experience of this. And as both a black theologian in a, a predominantly white school, one of the things that he has shared with me and in his Christian community context this quote, and I did get permission from him to say it. He says, none of my white colleagues want to talk about race. This is the time. I'm feeling it, and nobody wants to engage with me. And this, is a, this is a man with great credentials, with a lot of influence. And, you know, I've been kind of digesting this this phrase that, that he shared with me. Because it's so hard to move forward if there's just an absolutely forgetting of that past, that experience. And nobody wants to acknowledge what has happened in his history among his people to his family. You can't move on without talking about those painful experiences. Now, I bring this up because it's important for us when we're talking about these widows that were in Acts, and this feeling of neglect, this feeling of being forgotten, this feeling of being silenced, it's not an ancient problem. It's a human dilemma that happens every time 
when we are trying to bring a diverse body together. And it is happening now and today in the churches that we're in. Now, there's much more I can say about this. I'm kind of limited on time today. Uh, I'm gonna, some of these stories are going to be incomplete, and I, I'm sorry about that. But I'm trying to get to some of these points here that I want to make, too, that are pretty important. I want to say a couple of words, because so far I've really named a couple of minority experiences as Asian American, for African Americans. And I want to say a brief word uh, to Faith Village members here at Access, who maybe are of European descent or who maybe identify as white and maybe part of majority culture, and, and you're hearing some of these comments, and I don't know how it hits you. I don't know what it's like for you to hear some of these things. Uh, and I want to say a couple of things. Right now in culture, it can be very difficult for where you are today. Because there may be a part of U.S. history that your family didn't personally kind of walk through, right? Maybe you were a newer immigrant. Maybe you weren't in the South. I mean, you were. Um, maybe, maybe these things, when you try to talk about them, you feel attacked. You feel like you're an eggshells. You can't say things one way or the other because someone feels like, uh, from their minority experience, they're not, you're not listening to me, or, or they get really angry at you. Um, I want to say, first of all, to those here, here at Access, it's a very brave thing to come in with that background and be a part of Access. Because what you've done is you've entered into a minority experience for yourself. It takes a lot of, it takes a lot of courage. You didn't have to do that. You won't have to do that in Houston if you don't need to, if you don't want to. But it takes a lot of courage to do so and to stick with it. So thank you for that. But it's also important for me to say um, your voice in this is important as well. It's important to hear from you in a Christ-centered and loving way that you care about race, you care about minorities, you care about what's happening to people like me who often question our worth and our sense of belonging because we're always in that minority experience in wider culture. Okay, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna say more about this in a minute. Um, I know there are more minorities here, and I'm, I'm just needing to say that. Okay, so let's pay attention to the solution they chose. What was the solution that the early church chose, and why is it important for us to pay attention to this? So, when you think of a leader, what kind of qualities come to mind for you? If you were going to choose a leader, oftentimes in our culture today, the types of people that we pick are extroverted, are charismatic, who can lead a meeting, who could speak well and kind of control a situation, right? These are kind of the outward characteristics of leadership that many of us kind of quickly recognize. They're the ones who get promoted at work, in the, the corporate workplace, and um, that's interesting. Because in the church today, many of us have actually followed suit and done the same thing. But in Acts, there's something different going on. The apostles chose seven men who were known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. They were full of the Holy Spirit, and they had this wisdom about them. What did this mean? 
To be full of the Spirit is to be saturated, to be deep with the life of God. So some of you, have you ever met somebody who just really exuded a sense of godliness about them? That you know that they've spent time with God and they really have this sense that they see the world differently because God is so much a part of their everyday experience. As being full of the Spirit, full of patience and kindness and love and hope. Wise. What is wisdom? It's being able to make good decisions reflecting the way of God. This is just a quick definition, not a very strict theological one, but one that we'll do for today. It's being able to make good decisions that are based upon the way of God. So sometimes we see these as different. You know, people that are too spiritual, they don't really have, a, they're not in touch with reality. And then there's people who are like really worldly wise, but you wonder how spiritual they really are. These are men who knew it both, both sides of it. They held on to both things. They were full of the Spirit. They were wise. And this leads to decisions that we need to make. This is the choice that we need to make. If we are going to be a church that unites diverse people. I love this photo. I just... (laughs) There are two steps to the choice that we need to make. The first is this. It's learning to see others and their stories, especially people with minority status. It is learning to see others and to hear and receive and to catch their story, especially those who live as a minority in a majority culture, in a majority situation. Now, let me go back to to what I said earlier. Here at Access, just going to say it really plainly and, you know, we're a very Asian-American church. We have a lot of Asian-American influence. We came out of a Chinese church, and that core group of members was predominantly Chinese-American. It was our intention from the get-go not to stay that way. Uh, learning to move into new spaces has been challenging at times, but it has been very important for us spiritually. And we are putting our commitment into this vision to be a church that unites diverse people. We want to live into this reality more. But there are also a number of different Asian minority experiences here, uh, Thai, Vietnamese, Korean, others. Uh, I'm not going to be able to name everybody. Um, And these dynamics make up kind of the way we do life together. And some of that is going to be important as we learn to navigate this existence and learn to be a new kind of community that both affirms minority experiences, learns how to handle the power of being a majority here, and learns how to, to walk faithfully in the way of Jesus with all of this. We'll learn how to be full of the Spirit and wise in the way we do it. And it is important that we learn to see and recognize other people in the room, African-American, Latin, any other group that we may want to name, we are already like that. That is who we are becoming, more of who we are becoming. And the important thing is to learn 
to hold all these stories and these unique stories together to see that. Now, there's the race part of this. I'm only going to take about two minutes to just say this. This is not enough time to say this, but I need to say this today just to mention it. There are other minority and majority kind of statuses going on here at Access. And to have the eyes to see that is super important. One of them being the fact that our church is like busting at the seams with babies, okay? So over the course of something like 14 months, we're going to have like 14 new babies. It's, it's kind of a lot. Uh, there's a lot of people having kids, and, um, and that's a great thing to celebrate. We celebrate. We think it's a wonderful thing. Um, but here's the painful minority experience if you're single and maybe you feel like you're being forgotten or maybe you're single again or maybe you've had a hard time having a child. Um, when Amy and I uh, were part of another church before uh, and we struggled a little bit with infertility and couldn't have kids and people kept telling us, when are you going to have kids? When are you going to have kids? Over and over again, it was kind of like this broken record that would make me, ah. it's like, you don't think I'm trying? You don't think, you know, I... I you know, th- those things are very unhelpful. And I want to just call that here, out here. We want to be able to serve the whole group of experiences. And I want us to be able to talk about minority experiences in this as well. And if you are in that boat and you have felt like in the past or even now that because there are so many babies, it's difficult to show up to things because that's like the dominant narrative. We need to be able to handle this delicately. What that requires is spirit-filled, wise people who walk with Jesus and embody this, just like the early church. Step two, okay, like I said, it's, I can't say enough about it. It's just... I'm just laying out there. You guys, we're going to figure this out together. Okay, step two is to engage others in the spirit and with wisdom. To engage others with, in the spirit and with wisdom. What does this mean? What am I talking about? We had a retreat a couple weeks ago, and we were sharing sacred stories. We're telling about our ethnic stories and some of us dove into some deep places we reached deep, and some of the stories that we shared were painful. Uh, there were tears. There was joy. There was gratitude. There was lament. There was all of it. But something happened at that retreat that was super significant. We created countercultural space. You don't get to do that everywhere in the world today. It is so hard to share your story without someone criticizing, without somebody judging, without someone saying that that's because of your privilege that you get to share that, or that's because, or maybe dismissing you, neglecting you, silencing you. There's all of that going on in abundance in our culture. What we are trying to do, however imperfectly, is to begin to create sacred space here in the community of God to be able to tell your story however it is, in all of its brokenness, shortcomings, in all of its glory and its celebration, to be able to be fully you as God has created you and to move faithfully into the way of Christ. 
We need to create more of these spaces that we can engage each other in the Spirit of God and with wisdom. And when someone is able to share their experience of being a minority, and you get to listen to them and not cut them off and say, oh, yeah, I've been there too, or, oh, yeah, uh, that's great. You should hear my experience. You don't do those things, and you create the space to be able to receive someone. That's life. That's life-giving. We're onto something here, and I hope that will continue. So that's where I'm going to leave us today. It's a whole, it was a shorter message with some bits of challenge. And the challenge is here in these steps for you. What we need men and women who can engage life in this spirit to walk in wisdom. And to go into the places where there's hurt and discomfort through the dynamics of this majority-minority world, that, this world that handles it so poorly. And to create new space, kingdom space, sacred space, where love can dwell, where unity can be established and grown, where we can be Jesus' people. Okay? So we can't get into these questions for today, but they're for your small groups and for discussion. Take a picture of this um, and follow up with it later. Um, I'm encouraging to talk through stories of being a minority or being a majority. Uh, talk about experience of being neglected, overlooked, and silenced. That's an extremely vulnerable question, but I think it's an important one to follow up with Act 6. Um, and then we're going to talk about how Act 6 set a model for us in terms of leadership. Um, so these are our questions for the week. I'm going to turn now to the communion elements and to these words that were given to us by Jesus, by the Apostle Paul, that teach us about a new reality called the covenant of God. And the covenant of God, which was established by the death of Jesus, by his blood, by his sacrifice, says this. No matter how broken your past, no matter how sinful you've been, you can be in the family of God. Not because you were righteous, but because of the gracious invitation of Jesus. So as we take the bread and we dip it in the cup and receive the grace of God, know that you belong, know that you were heard, know that your full story is caught up in this kingdom of God and with a God who loves and sees and knows you. I'm going to invite the communion servers to come up to the front. We're going to take communion together and then for the rest of us, come when you're ready. If you are new here and maybe you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, let this be a first step of faith, to saying, yes, I believe. I want to take up the invitation of Jesus to be part of the kingdom of God.